Welcome to the Wiggly podcast from the Wiggly Sofa. It's a glorious day in Blakemere in July. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers and... I'm Rachel from Wiggly Wigglers. Hooray, Rach! Now then, do you know what was in the wood burner earlier? A sparrow. A starling. Is this something that happens at this time of year? I just don't know, but we found it, we saved it and we've let it free. Now I've just got to say hello to... Oh, I feel like a Radio 2 DJ. Hello to Mr. Maynell from Blackheath in London. And I'm going to play for you today the Wiggly theme tune. Do, 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 do. He's a payroll consultant and he said to me at Hampton Court Palace Flower Show that he listens on his iPod going to work and it's a breath of fresh air. Isn't that nice? That's lovely. Normally, the Wiggly Wigglers podcast is... Hysterical and informative. Says... Roxanne Glick, who I met at Hampton Court Garden. No, Hampton Court Palace Garden or was it a flower show? Flower show. It's a flower show, that's it, last week who was one of our lovely customers that I met, came to the store where we were selling our wormeries. Well, Fred Gray says, normally the podcast is a great debate, good points from all the team, but I still think Farmer Phil is the voice of reason. But today we just don't feel the same way. You know, it's great to have a bit of a row, isn't it? And usually, I know, dear listener, you think the weekly podcast is the voice of reason. But we go off on a rant today, so I'd like to apologise for losing my temper during this podcast where I actually tear up the newspaper and throw it away. I'm going to be back in a good mood next week, but have a listen to Farmer Phil and myself walking up the field to look at our own areas of wildlife track and our own crops of growing food to eat. It's a passionate podcast. Enjoy. So, Farmer Phil, we're out in the... Uh, what field's this? Tank field. Tank field. So cool because it's full of well, uh, army tanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, it used to house the. It used to have the diesel tanks years ago in the entrance to it. Oh. Not, <laughs> Not a very romantic field then. Now, there's a big hole in the middle of it which just seems to be mud. It looks like the wheat that I've seen in Africa, <laughs> sparsely populated, well, that was a, occasional sprigs. A, a low-lying area of the field that was flooded for most of the winter time, so that the wheat didn't, didn't grow there. Mercifully, it's only a small area, but it's a reminder of the uh, fairly difficult conditions that we had to establish the wheat in this last autumn stroke winter. Now, when we went off to Burton last week you kept saying to me gosh there's loads of fields with no crops in them at all Mm. I I must say that as I've travelled around the country I have been more and more surprised at how many fields I've found that are uncropped because this year there are no set aside requirements so that the government is not trying to persuade people not to plant crops We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it's obviously where people have decided that it's uneconomic to try and grow a crop because the planting conditions were so bad or so late so that they've left the land fallow for a year on the basis that they'll plant it next autumn. 
So how can they possibly afford to do that? Because no matter how late it was, you've got your crops in, and well, I mean my, they don't look quite my crops, right. My crops are a little bit different because they're all seed contracts. So the people I'm contracted to to provide the seed are expecting me to produce some seed. Now, if I just said, oh, it's uneconomic, I'm not going to make any money because the yield's not high enough, I'm not going to plant it, they wouldn't get any seed at all. So that I'm a little bit duty-bound in terms of my relationship with my customers to plant a crop even if it's going to be a second-rate crop, and so that's what we've done, that yields won't be high. But if you are producing commodity feed wheat then if you're going to lose money on planting the field, surely it's better not to plant it at all. Isn't this just an excuse because you'll get the subsidy on the land so you can do nothing and still earn your money? The fact that the money comes as subsidy makes no odds. If there was no subsidy, then the price of the wheat would be higher to compensate. But what it does show is that the farmer has taken a sensible business decision that rather than just plant it religiously that the returns from his activities are not going to be great enough so he hasn't planted it and that actually is quite a sea change that that would that would have been fairly unheard of 10 20 years ago the effects of the post-war efforts to persuade farmers to grow as much food as possible you would have been pilloried by your neighbors for not planting a crop because you weren't producing that food well i heard you turning your nose up you were quite put out i wasn't put out at all i was surprised because i i was surprised that it had affected people that badly it is quite a serious thing not to plant a crop but it's an interesting thing because in relation to the the set-aside argument that we're about to talk about it's indicative that farming is still a very marginal activity and those who are still doing it are actually realising that fact and are attacking it with a bit more you know a bit more of an eye on the numbers that if you can't make any money at it don't do it now that's quite a change because that didn't used to be the attitude if you rented a field or owned a field you farmed the field it's quite ironic to think that there's all these campaigners campaigning for Um, wildlife and set aside and different animals and birds and yet I've not heard them mention the fact that actually we're not growing as much food and yet on the other side you've got the Buy British campaign there doesn't seem to be any joined up thinking moments which is grow the crop in the middle of the field and encourage the wildlife around the outside of the field I think, in fairness, the environmental schemes major on that bad idea. So the idea of having buffer strips around the edges of the fields and putting safeguards in place to stop people damaging hedges, that is already there and is accepted as a way of, of managing. I don't choose to do the buffer strips for a number of reasons, but then I've got the benefit of a network of very healthy hedges, whereas a lot of farmers don't have those. That you know, If you don't happen to have many hedges or you have vast fields then the effects of buffer strips around the edges are much more significant also our farm is interspersed with areas of woodland which make a terrific difference to the the habitat available to wildlife so i don't i don't think that that is necessarily fair what i do think is that the campaigning groups tend to try to push farmers and pull farmers in different directions so that in one direction you'll be told that the public want cheap food and all the rest of it and in the other direction they'll be told that they don't want any type of intensive farming and in some cases they don't want farming at all 
Oh, stop generalising. What are you on about? <laughs> what I'm on about is that you can't have all things, that farming of whatever type you do is a compromise on the environment. It doesn't matter whether it's organic. The actual act of cultivating the field and growing the crop is a compromise, and it is merely a question of where you set that compromise. And my own belief is that where an individual farmer sets that compromise should dictate who wants to buy his or her produce. Mm, sounds a bit simplified to me. Listen, this wheat makes the most wonderful bits for our flower arrangements. <laughs> you don't mind if Rosie comes out here and steals about 500... What's a sprig called? Head. Head. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I would think I might live with that. Mm, it's gorgeous. So in this week's Wiggly Bouquets, dear listener, will be at least two or three sprigs of Farmer Phil's best wheat. It, will that be free to us? Um, it'll probably be free in, the inst- in, the, in, in as much as I won't bill you for it. <laughs> Listen, I want to know about set-aside because I, I don't get it. Now, in the garden, you rotate your crops from one raised bed to another and you leave one fallow or perhaps you put a green manure on top of it to rest the land. Completely logical. So is that set-aside? Not exactly. Set-aside has become a little bit confused with exactly what you're talking about. Set-aside originated when Europe produced too much grain, mostly, but too much crops in a number of areas, and set-aside was introduced as a a way of reducing that surplus. And the simple idea was that the farmer was paid his subsidy, and as part of the licence to receive his subsidy, he had to set aside or not plant a percentage of his arable area. That was the simple starting point. Was it for the excess, or was it for the sake of the field, or was it, it for was, the sustainability? It was nothing to do with sustainability or the sake of the field or fertility or anything like that. It was purely to reduce the so-called grain mountains in Europe. So and that job's done? It, well, job's done job was done some time ago but it's it's indicative of the problem that subsidy has created inflated grain prices in Europe which means that Europe can't export the grain to the poorer areas of the world where grain prices are more real if you like so that they're not affected by subsidy because their grains cost them too much and so the way it used to be done was that governments paid subsidy on the tons of grain going out of Europe it's just a, a mad situation so is that permanent set-aside, so you leave it forever they fallow? Had, they had different ways of doing it, but originally there were two options. There was long-term set-aside, where you left one patch of ground fallow for a period of time, a number of years, and they had rotational set-aside. The idea of that was that you had it in the rotation, so moved it round the farm. Those two things worked quite well. The grain mountains disappeared, and they changed how the subsidy was paid so that it gave a more real value to the wheat that was being produced by European farmers which allowed them to export it and so on. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, any fool could see that set-aside would therefore rest the ground, which must be beneficial to all the soil organisms, the bugs and the beasties, and grow crops naturally or grow plants naturally which must attract wildlife, give them shelter, habitat and so... That must be a good thing for wildlife. Um, Possibly. There were a number of caveats to how the set-aside system was set up. For example, if you grew a non-food crop for an industrial process, such as particular varieties of oilseed rape, 
you were allowed to grow that on your set-aside field and still claim the subsidy. Ah. So that that spoilt that idea for a percentage of it. But what was noticed that we, for example, adopted a, a policy of what was called natural regeneration, so you just let what was going to grow in the field grow, rested it for the year, sprayed off all the rubbish at the end of the year, assuming we were in rotational set-aside, and planted next year's crop. And we noticed that a year's set-aside resulted in a better crop the year after. So that obviously you're dead right that resting the fields for a year gave a benefit. And it was also noticed that set-aside was obviously a wildlife habitat. But having said that, that's a very sweeping statement that set-aside in itself wasn't a wildlife habitat, but it allowed areas of fields and areas next to hedges and so on to be really good wildlife habitats because it's undisturbed, it's quiet, nobody goes in the field for the 12 months or whatever or the 8 months and there was undoubtedly a benefit. The environmental benefits and effects of set-aside are now at the forefront of the thinking about set-aside rather than food production and food surpluses. So what's happened now, Farmer Phil, with (laughs) Hilary Benn? Hilary Benn is the... Minister for Agriculture. He's fairly controversial. He gets a fairly low scoring amongst farmers, at any rate. Oh, don't be a meanie. Well, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) after much chuntering and toing and froing, that it had been suggested as a, an environmental measure that British agriculture should reintroduce set-aside. And also, since there was a surplus of wheat this year, it was, you know, right to do so. And so then came the argument, should it be voluntary, so should the farmer have the choice as to what he set aside and why, or should it be compulsory, i.e. a fixed percent of the arable area of the farm? Now, to cut a long story short, the fixed alternative was going to penalise those farmers who were already in environmental schemes. So they'd already set aside, if you like, or, or put ground out of food production and into buffer strips and so on, and it would seriously count against... The ELS the, people. ELS, to some extent, and to a greater extent, the higher-level schemes. So they've got a beautifully integrated farm yeah. with buffer zones, wildlife and food production. Exactly. They love their life. Yeah. This is Tim Teague. This is Tim Teague. And, and a number of other people but because of the European rules on double funding he couldn't count the land that he'd already taken out of production as set aside so he would then have to take more good productive land out of production on top of so that the the likes of him were absolutely dead against it Um, those of us who are not in the environmental schemes and we won't go into those reasons (laughs) now obviously favoured the voluntary alternative because there are no people better at knowing which areas of their farm are best for wildlife than the people who live and work on them. So in front of you, you've got a 40-acre field. Now, if I set aside the middle 20 acres, oh it, dear. Would, it would give the hares a playpen to run But nobody would come up with that. Well, the trouble is that if you live on a 300-acre on a arable farm in Norfolk, that's what your farm looks like. Yeah. Probably without the hedges. Yeah. So compulsory set-aside would mean that you are paying for areas such as that to be uncropped and then there is the danger that somebody's going to say well there's no environmental benefit you haven't tried hard enough now here in Herefordshire we're really lucky because we've got a diverse landscape we've got hedges we've got woods and so on we've got grass we've got cows we've got 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 sheep so that we've got pigs exactly and you know we're standing in a little area here it's a grassy tract 
There are butterflies in amongst the grasses. There are several species of grasses in here, and certainly in the permanent pasture fields there are many more. Lovely for butterfly. There's a little bit of ragwort there, which is good for cinnabar moths, but not much good for animals. Oh, dear. Um, Your mum will be cross about that. She will be cross with Because that's dangerous for horses. It is. But it is good for cinnabar moths. It is. But it, this means that we're probably much more likely to have the diversity of wildlife without setting aside anything. Yeah, but Farmer Phil, come on, you can't say Herefordshire can be wildlife county and Essex has to be bare. I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is that there is this danger that if you try and make environmental policies like this conform to rules and figures, it's never going to be fair and there's always going to be a row. It's like saying there are no polar bears in that field. Black mark. Of course there are no polar bears in that field. There doesn't happen to be a glacier in that field. And that is the type of argument that we're talking about. But isn't the point that if you leave it to farmers, as the price of wheat goes up, just as as the price of wheat's gone down, they haven't cropped their fields, that as it goes up, they will want to, quite understandably, crop everything and anything that's croppable, and therefore all the good environmental benefits that have come about will be wiped out because the market doesn't necessarily fit the landscape. That is true and, and actually it's quite interesting that when you talk to farmers that is their first response. If you say to them the price of wheat goes up to £150 a tonne, what are you going to do? A lot of them will say I'm going to plough everything. <laughs> but when you actually then say to them well that's great and that's what happened last year, have you recultivated all your set aside when it was taken out last year and everyone I've asked has said well no I haven't actually and you say to them well why wouldn't you have done that and they said well there's that bit of field down the bottom there which was wet and rough and full of wild oats and it was no good at all and it was more trouble than it's worth so I went round that bit because it was uneconomic now that is exactly the thing that slowly and it is slowly you know not all farmers are environmentalists but increasingly they are taking a combination of environmental and business-like views to do just that. But we so could just fast-forward this and say, all you need to do is follow the LEAF model. LEAF is integrated farm management. It talks about wildlife, plant, food, profit. Absolutely. And I, I think that that, that, is, that that is a good model to follow. But DEFRA and governments can't actually put figures on it. And that's the trouble, that they want to be able to go back to Europe and say, we have achieved this, that and the other percent of this, that and the other, and therefore we're good old boys. What they actually don't want to do is to tackle the rather nebulous thing, well, is that actually better for the environment? If the environment is all you're worried about, then you don't grow any food. You live on a, a moorland or you let it go back to some sort of jungle. If you're going to grow food, and it doesn't matter how you grow it, and you're going to achieve some sort of sustainability with the environment, then you have to make a choice. And it's where you make that choice as to which bit of ground you're going to do what with. You know, in our case, we've got the cattle, so that the fields that are steepest and roughest are permanent pasture. There but is. you'll be chastised for that, because Absolutely. cows burp. Absolutely. But and yet... But the grass you know, I, I, I know dear Manx boy 
who's on Twitter, he says, you forget your cattle. You go vegetarian and you must stop having cows with methane but what, or, or what whatever my, it is. my good friend Manx's boy forgot, until I pointed it out to him, was that the act of growing the food for the cattle fixes more carbon than the greenhouse gas they produce. And there is also scope to alter how we feed cattle to seriously reduce the greenhouse gas they produce. So he didn't actually ask me whether we feed our cattle silage, for example. We don't. We feed them grass seed straw. But isn't the point that it's horses for courses? So land that can't necessarily grow the best wheat or the best food it goes to be um, permanent pasture or maybe goes to be woodland and then flat fields that are big enough grow food. I think that that is essentially right. I think also that sometime in the future, how we get there I don't know, but it is the fault of subsidy that causes these ripples and disruptions. If you actually took subsidy out of the equation and said to the farmer, there is the farm, you will be judged on what you do to it by your customers, grow your crops, have your cattle and so on, but bear in mind that these customers are watching you and you're going to have to explain why there is no wildlife on your farm. But there's 25,000 farmers, how the hell can they possibly explain... Well, exactly, you mentioned leaf and things like Open Farm Sunday are a shortcut to this type of thinking and it is right that farmers are actually finding that it is not a terrifying experience to talk to members of the public and explain what they're doing and as I said earlier what they're starting to think is if I don't actually make any money out of trying to grow a crop on that piece of field then wouldn't it be better to plant a few trees and have it nice to look at it's my farm that's the way to do it it actually increases my bottom line by doing the right thing in the right place it is subsidy that has led us in the first place to trying to do the wrong thing in those places it is a subsidy on wheat that made us plough up ground that we perhaps shouldn't have done what's hillary ben done hillary ben after much chuntering has opted for the voluntary route although this was did have a slight caveat because when he announced it at the Royal Show last week he said uh, that voluntary set-aside would be the, the way forward so that the industry would have to do it itself but if that didn't produce enough environmental benefits we'd have compulsory set-aside. <laughs> uh, Let's just the, walk over here. One of the Farmers Weekly reporters pointed out to him fairly logically that if that was the case that was hardly voluntary and the very short response that he got indicated that Mr Ben was wrestling with the problem and it wasn't terribly easy. From my point of view, the voluntary option is, with reservations, the correct one. What worries me is that I see people are going to try and measure the effects of it. And that is where I think there is extreme danger. So, here I have the Telegraph in front of me and uh, 18 different wildlife campaign groups from Bug Life through to the Badger Trust through to the RSPB have written a letter to the Telegraph about wildlife on farms. So I presume they have been campaigning like Billio 
to make it compulsory. Yeah, they wanted compulsory set-aside, which I think is short-sighted on their part, but that's what they thought. Here we go. Sir, finally a decision has been made on how to address the environmental impact of the loss of set-aside. The government has backed an idea of an industry campaign to encourage farmers voluntarily to provide environmental measures on farms. We had supported an alternative approach of linking farm subsidies to providing a small percentage of land for wildlife. This would have brought greater certainty for the environment and would have ensured that all farmers played a part in providing for wildlife. What matters now is that the farming industry campaign delivers results. We will, of course, help where we can. <laughs> we will also watch carefully to see that the targets the industry has agreed with the government are met. If not, we will make sure that the mandatory fallback identified by Hilary Benn, the Environment Secretary, is activated. Mr Benn has placed considerable trust in farming industry leaders and they must now ensure that all their members play a part in making the campaign succeed. Now, I am a great supporter of most of these groups, principles and ideas. But I find that to be the most patronising letter that I have read for some time. And so I say to you lot... <laughs> you can see why <laughs> relations between agriculture and some of these lobby groups are at best strained. I can, because the thing is, come to the farm. Come to Open Farm Sunday. Start supporting those things where farmers are actually making an impact. Go and see Tim Teague and the efforts that he's made on his farm. Encourage those farmers and other people will come along. Write letters like that. Then, as far as I can see, it's just... It's a threat. It is. It's, it's bullying. It, I'd it love is. to know how they would feel if I went round to their garden and said, right, you are now forced to grow cabbage but because you have got a wildlife garden, which I have encouraged you to do for the last 20 years, but now you must grow cabbage because you, as a wildlife gardener, have a complete obligation to grow cabbages for food today. So I want every single one of you wildlife gardeners to grow cabbages because that is how I read that letter and I am a very keen supporter of most of those the, groups. The pity of it is is that Oh I've gotten a fret. This is <laughs> Oh I'm all calmly. Right. <laughs> the pity of it is that this situation only arises out of subsidy. It is subsidy that gives these groups the lever as long as they've got the ear of government to do it rather than actually encourage farmers to do what farmers... You know, most farmers enjoy their farms and live on or in their farms. They are latent environmentalists, most of them. It is only when you start putting the pressure on them that the bad practices start to come out. And I won't say that they're all absolutely keen on the environment. But this idea that having created businesses that are reliant on subsidy after 50 years of subsidy, that you then use it as a stick to get your political point across. I'm not in agreement with bully boy tactics. And as you say, if they engaged with farmers and allowed the public to engage with farmers on the same subject, that you would get a much more positive relationship going. You know. Do you know what that letter should have said? That letter should have said... I've been round to Lower Blakemere Farm. I've been round to Tim Teague's farm. I've been down to, to Gothenen. 
I am a member of these organisations. Those farmers have done a wonderful job. They've already put tons of space aside for wildlife, but their job as farmers is to grow us really good food. We support them. We need more farmers to do that. Exactly. And interestingly, they have been here to Blakemere and they have marvelled at the variety of things that you can see here on the farm that you know, we're blessed with a huge variety of wildlife and they have come here and agreed that that is the case. And yet they then go away to their policy department. There's no set aside on this farm other than what I've put there out of my choice and they then go away to their policy thing and say, well, never mind that I and many other farmers do it like this, we're going to just make a political mess and write letters that annoy us. But it's also such a shame because that letter is in the Telegraph. That's not a letter to the farmers themselves. That's a letter to the public showing what a force those organisations are. If that was a genuine letter to try and help the situation, that letter should be to farmers. I think you're right, and it's interesting that in the same issue of the Telegraph there was a little paragraph that said that... um, various surveys have been conducted on the popularity or not with farmers or of farmers with the public and that farmers have not enjoyed such high popularity as they've got now since the last war. Now to me that means that groups such as the RSPB are potentially under threat because the public are actually seeing farmers through things like Leaf and Open Farm Sunday they are seeing what farmers are about and what they're doing and they are understanding some of the pressures that make them do the the less obvious things and this means that lobby groups lose their power. Their power is really their subscribers' ignorance to the situation and that's exactly what you're saying, that by writing a letter to the Telegraph to the general public that they are relying on that general public's ignorance of what is actually going on on the ground. Yeah, because they, of course, will not understand that farmers... How many? What percentage of farmers have already done the ELS scheme and the HLS scheme? What percentage of farmers have actually already got their tracks of wildlife corridors? You know, I just think, come on, let's give the whole story out here. And so if you've been annoyed buy this weekly podcast this week and think it's gone too political maybe you're right but you know what I got really cross with that because I just think we need to have a balance we need to be able to put our views across instead of chastising farmers or threatening farmers we should be supporting them and encouraging them to grow good food less intensively but also encourage wildlife to be part of it. To my mind, there's no argument between the two. It should be that they're integrated, and that's why I like the integrated farm management model. You know, it's not a question of, if you do have set-aside, you will automatically have wildlife, and if you grow food, you will automatically not have any wildlife. Think of your garden and encourage those groups to think the same way. Well, there we are. Back inside now. Calm down. Beautiful day. Gorgeous surroundings. Birds are singing. Anyway, you'll be crossed now, dear listener. So um, if you'd like to email me, it's heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk. It's uh, farmerphil is 
farmer phil with no e on twitter and pwg at lowerblakemere.co.uk we'd love to hear what you think and we will talk with you next week bye bye